When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode one, the five secrets of happy retirees. I'm so excited about this podcast because it really gets to the heart of what I'm trying to accomplish with this whole podcast. On this episode, we're going to talk about five well-researched secrets and habits that lead to a happy retirement. But first, I'm going to get into a little bit about who I am and how I became interested in my life's work helping you retire happier and sooner. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. So I started thinking about this relationship between money and happiness really early on as a, as a kid. And I grew up in a pretty rural area right outside of, not right outside, way outside of Philadelphia, actually closer to Lancaster County, which is Amish country. The, the dynamic was interesting because around me, when you live out in the country uh, in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of farmland and the, that farmland can either be wealthy people that have like a bunch of horses or there was a ranch near where I live where there was a bunch of cattle. And then where, near where I live, there was also a bunch of Amish folk. And my, my dad, as a veterinarian, but when, we were, when I was really young, he was just a large animal veterinarian. If you live in, in horse country slash Amish country, who are your clients going to be? Well, you get a couple rich folks with fancy horses, but most of your clients are Amish dairy farmers. As a little kid, you know, age five or six, and I would go on farm calls with my dad. There was never anything like, hey, let's do something fun. But it was always like, hey, come with me. And we're going to, we're doing a farm call. Because it's brutal. So it was like four in the morning, five in the morning, in the middle of the winter, in the middle of the summer. Hey, we're going to Eli Stoltzfus's farm. You know, we're going to go work on a cow that has milk fever. And by the way, I remember one cold fall day as the winter approached. Uh, I was in one of these cow barns and... All the cows would be in these stalls and they basically, they have these things underneath them called gutters. And you can imagine what's in the gutter. It's not good. And as a little kid, I like slipped into one of these gutters and fell like face first or whatever. And it was freezing cold outside. I'm covered in manure. And I remember my father sprayed me off with a hose at his Amish farm. And that was the moment I knew I would never become a veterinarian. But the reason I, I bring up this story is that so I'm surrounded by these, these really kind of wealthy folks and then Amish dairy farmers who had kind of just enough money to get by. And it always, for some reason, I was always confused. It's like, well, the Amish people seem pretty happy and the really rich people, some of them don't even seem so happy. Some of them were like, what's this relationship between money and happiness? And as a little kid, not only did I learn not that I didn't want to become a veterinarian, 
But I started wondering what that relationship was all about. And then I ended up in the investment industry. And I've been in now for a couple of decades now. But about 10 years ago, I kind of got serious about this, this topic. And I thought to myself, I need to study or research this. Another catalyst to get me on, the, on a project that I call the Money and Happiness Research Survey that I did back seven or eight years ago was sparked also by The Pursuit of Happiness. And this is a movie that really hit me hard as a, as a grown-up in the financial industry. We'd gone through 9-11 and the recession, and the markets were terrible for many years in, early in my career. Bad year after bad year after bad year. The movie is about a financial advisor. Uh, named Chris Gardner, played by Will Smith, and his young son, who was three or four or five years old in the movie. True story. Chris Gardner was doing everything right as a medical hardware sales guy. And he's running around the city of San Francisco, and he's doing his job, and he's working his tail off. And he's doing well, but the company he's with is not doing so well. So here he is making these sales and paying his rent and raising his son as a single dad and the company goes bankrupt and they can't pay him. Now they let him on for like a month or two. Then they finally went out of business. So he went like two, two months, three months without a paycheck, even though he was doing everything right. Well, what happened? He couldn't pay his rent and he got kicked out. This is like this professional guy going around selling to doctors, doing well. And now what, now where is he? He's homeless. He's a homeless single dad in the city of San Francisco. And I, and I actually keep the, the, this movie ticket in my little memento box on, on top of my dresser because it, was, it hit me so hard as a, as a new dad. Here he is in this bathroom, this restroom, in a subway, trying to sleep, trying to get a night's sleep with his son with his foot against the restroom stall door because he was just trying to, to get some rest. I think the takeaway from that movie is the scary side of money, of the, hey, I don't have any money. And we all go through, no matter how well you've done your career, you've probably had a period of time where you were nervous about money. How are we going to pay this bill? What happens if something happens to my company? What happens if the stock market crashes? What happens if my industry goes away? So you think about this relationship between money and happiness. Well, on one side of it is the, hey, I can I have all this money. To, I want this money to do all these things. And then there's the other side of that pendulum, which is, hey, I don't have enough to even do the basics. So that pursuit of happiness, and then I think about my upbringing between this, this world of who's happy and with not a lot of money and who's not as happy with lots of money, really set me on this, what I've has now become really like a life's work with me, to always study this relationship between money and happiness and figure out what is the heart of this. So I set out on a project back in 2013 and I've continued to do research on this for all of these years and done multiple, multiple surveys and studies to try to figure out this really important, very complicated relationship. How much money does it take to be happy? How much income do we need to have? So I, I set out on this project and to, to tackle the question on my own and, and do it through empirical research and data, which is how I like to, to study the world. And I, I went out and interviewed, I was able to interview 1,300 or survey 1,350 different families in 46 different states, asked them several dozen different financial questions, consumer behavior questions, 
And then a series of questions that allowed people to kind of rank themselves on the scale of happiness. And I took the, the top two quadrants. Those are the, the fours and the fives in my group, the happiest two groups, the happiest two quintiles, and then compared the, them to the lowest two quintiles, the ones and the twos, which were kind of self-selected in the unhappy group. We, we cut out the middle and then we were able to compare the financial habits and the lifestyle habits and and now what has become the family habits and really the marriage habits and all of these different habits of happy retirees relative to the unhappy group. There's such a clear message in the data of what the happy group does relative to what the unhappy group does in all these different categories. That became the book, You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think, The Five Money Secrets of the Happiest Retirees. Because guess what? Oh, by the way, the folks that had the money secrets, the happy group, they were able to retire sooner than the majority of the population. When I first set out on this, my thought was, gosh, if in America, if you can even get to retirement, you're in a, in a rarefied air. If you can get to 65 or 66, 67 and have plenty of money to continue to live the lifestyle you want to live then that in itself is a rare, a rare group to even be in. Then over the years, people have come to me, hey, Wes, I'm 62 and I'm, and I'm ready to retire, okay? Hey, Wes, I read your book and I'm 58 and I'm ready to retire. Wes, I'm 52 and I'm ready to retire. Wait a minute. This book was supposed to be retire sooner, not retire so really sooner. I realize that these habits, if we can, if we can figure them out and I can teach them, we can basically reverse engineer happiness and retirement and be able to have those same habits so that we can, I don't know, knock off a year of, of retirement, maybe retire a year sooner than you would have thought. Maybe it's two, two years, maybe it's five years. Hence the mission of this podcast. If, we could, if I can help a million folks retire a year sooner, I mean, that's a lot of time. It's a lot of created economic freedom that didn't exist before. Here's some statistics, like all these scary retirement statistics, because it really is scary for a lot of people. Remember the Chris Gardner story? It's the fear side of money. It's not having enough. Well, think about this. Only 58% of Americans are saving for retirement to begin with. That means that four in 10 people are saving zero. Almost 50% of Americans, and half of the population, again, this is the adult population, has less than $10,000 saved. 10 grand. That includes baby boomers. The baby boomers are the ones that are supposed to be retiring like tomorrow. 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring in America. 3.6 million baby boomers retiring per year. 36 million baby boomers retiring over, over the next decade. Some catching up to do. Here's another one. More than 50% of baby boomers say all or most of their, their income in retirement is going to just come from what? Social security. That's not, that, that doesn't feel good. How many times have we heard the Social Security Trust Fund is running down to zero by the year 2023? That's not a that's that's a scary proposition. So we know that the the reason the retirement statistics in America are currently this dire and this scary is because it takes a lot of work to get it right, and not everybody can do it. And that's a huge mission of, for what we're doing here on the Retire Sooner podcast to be able to help you help you be better at this because it's not easy. And it's not it's not something that just comes naturally to everybody. And it takes, I think, a lot of it takes a, a, a lot of education, which we're trying to do. And then it takes a ton of work.
and it's a long journey to get there. And I've, but I've seen it happen over and over again. And that's with people that have started really late in life. And I've written many a story about folks who didn't, who looked up at each other across the dinner table and said, wow, we just put our kids through school and we've got like 10 grand saved in our 401k and we're, you know, we're in our 40s or almost 50. So there are ways to play catch up too. And there will certainly be episodes here that we'll talk about that topic. Let me get back to the five habits of these happy retirees, the ones that can retire sooner. And by the way, if you go to the appendix in the book, you can retire sooner than you think, there's actually 18 of these traits. Today, I want to kind of give you the five core money principles that make all this, this happen. And here's a little bit of a preview. Does, does money buy happiness? My answer is yes, it does. But for a lot less than you might think. And once you achieve a certain level financially, then happiness actually tends to level off or what we call in our research, the plateau effect. An economist would call this the diminishing marginal return. So it's diminishing, diminishing marginal happiness per more money that you earn once you get to a certain point. And that is a really important piece to start all of this out. It's not as though in the more money, every single time you have more or save more, happiness doesn't continue to rise forever. Now, there are studies that have actually challenged that. There's a new study out of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania that shows that money, as money continues to rise, so does happiness almost perpetually. And, and I, I don't see how that's even really possible. Our research shows that money and happiness, they do correlate, meaning that more money equals more happiness. But then at a certain point, it really levels off. The reason I think that more of us can get to this place of financial independence than Wall Street or the financial media will lead you to believe is that it doesn't have to be millions and millions and millions of dollars. It doesn't have to be. It's widely known that Susie Orman, money guru Susie Orman, says you got to have a minimum of $5 million to retire. She'll say, but, but for most people, you really need $10 million to retire. And that, that doesn't make sense in my book certainly works to get to five. It certainly works to get to 10. I work with lots of families that have that much or, or even more. But over 20 plus years of being in the retirement industry, I've also seen families retire with a lot less than that and still make it work and do all the things they want to do. All right, let's start. So here we are with what, what are these five secrets? Secret number one, determine what you want and need your retirement money for. It's already hard enough to stay motivated. Very often, it's all about save, 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 save. Well, I, one day I woke up and I said, well, what are, what are we saving the money for? Well, if you have that purpose in mind, what are you going to use all this savings for? You're sacrificing for 30, 40 years of savings, 20, 30, 40 years of savings. What's, it, what's the payoff? Well, the payoff I refer to are as core pursuits. Core pursuits are your hobbies on steroids that you are going to be more busy in retirement than when you were before. Guess what happens? Or here's the statistic. Unhappy retirees, by the way, retire with 1.9 core pursuits. Happy retirees end up with 3.6 core pursuits. So here's the difference. And by the way, these are statistically significant. I actually went to the Georgia Tech Math Department to help me verify these, uh, these differentials for statistical significance. And here's the first one. Happy retirees, 3.6, that means the happy retiree has almost four things that are they would consider hobbies on steroids. They live for these. A core pursuit is something you live for, not you do once in a while. The unhappy group has less than two. That's a big difference. And this, this goes back to the thought of, well, what am I going to spend all my time? We all know the stories of people with all the money in the world 
and no place to go and nothing they're excited about doing. And it's a very real part of the retirement equation. I very often I'll talk to CEOs, entrepreneurs that are super busy. They'll they'll read these habits and say, Wes, you know, you're right. I didn't I've been thinking all about the money part and I've been trying to get so that I have enough money to stop. But I know now that I really need to have something I'm moving toward all the things I'm going to do. And from my research, it doesn't really even matter what those things are. It's just personal to you. I actually have a core pursuit find. We actually have an algorithm on westmoss.com. It's called the core pursuit finder. You actually go there, enter in. It's, 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 it's literally you're choosing pictures. I like indoors or outdoors. I like charitable giving or I like to actually build a house for uh, Habitat of Humanity. I'd like to do, I'm more of a, a stay at home or I like to travel. And you go through and you answer a bunch of questions and they'll come back with two dozen different core pursuits from a database of well over a hundred different core pursuits that we've gathered over the years of what happy retirees love to do. The number one hobby though for the happy groove happens to be volunteering. So of course I would say usual suspects in this group. Volunteering by the way, number one for the happy group. Then there's things like travel. Then there's things like grandchildren. Then there's things that are activity related. I call these the ings walking, biking, hiking, running, a lot, a lot of, uh, of active pursuits that happy retirees tend to do in actually a really social way. But then there are things like write, writing and reading and hunting and fishing and uh, lots of different core pursuits. And there are, there's a difference between the happy group's top core pursuits and the unhappy group. And, and, I, and, and I've talked about that over the years. I think it's less important of what they are and more of having multiple things that we love to do. And these, these hobbies on steroids, these core pursuits. So, so this first secret is, is and I, I find it so, so important, is to get yourself to that 3.6. Call it four different things that you and or your spouse, some you can share with your spouse, some you have to really should be doing on your own for your own peace of mind and your own curiosity. But having these core pursuits is critical step number one for the happy retiree. Another interesting data point in the, what are we going to do with the money? I, I asked this survey group of 1,350 families, how many vacations do you take on average per year? The unhappy group, the, the least happy retirees, on average took 1.4 vacations per year. The happy group averages 2.4 vacations per year. What? I often think of when you're trying to make, these are kind of life decisions. These are also investment decisions because it's your time and it's, a, it's potentially more money. I don't know if it's the happy retiree is happier because they're taking an extra vacation per year or do they have a little bit more money and they're able to take that or maybe they're just more curious and they want to go more places. I don't know exactly what it is. But what I do know is that our, my data tells me that more vacations are better. And that if you're sitting down trying to make a determination, this is the great thing about financial planning and planning for your future is that rarely is there a black and white answer. Rarely is it ever, yes, we need to do this. No, we shouldn't do that. It's, well, we could do either. Well, what about, hey, honey, do you think we should take another vacation? My answer would be if you've only taking one or one, one and a half a year, my answer is it's probably an important thing to do to continue to have this happy retirement. And I'm just a big believer in following the research here. Secret number two, use this formula to figure out how much money you need to save before you retire. 
I call this, we call this the thousand bucks a month rule. So here's the rule. For every $240,000 you have as you're saving, because again, we're going back to what's the, what are we saving for? Well, we're saving for core pursuits, but we're also saving for what? Well, we want a perpetual paycheck in the future. I love milestones here. Well, here's a milestone, 240 grand. Equal, should equal about a thousand bucks a month. Well, what's the math? 240,000 times 5% a year or withdrawal rate is $12,000 a year divided by 12 months is a thousand bucks a month. We have a whole other episode around withdrawal rates. 4% rule has now been upgraded to the 4% plus rule. The reality about withdrawal rates is it's a, it's a, it's a rule of thumb around anywhere. 4 to 5% a year is kind of the maximum range that, we, that you want to target as a retiree to ensure that your money still lasts for a 30 and 40 year potential retirement. But I use this, again, another rule of thumb, the thousand bucks a month rule. Happy retirees have an understanding of what it's going to create for them when they get to that point where they need, they've stopped working and now they need their money to be working for them. So the thousand bucks a month rule, 240 grand equals a thousand bucks a month. That's just the math. Now, if you start to think about, well, how much does the happy retiree need in liquid savings? I asked that question. And I did see this correlation of more money equaled more propensity being a higher happiness group, but it started to tail off when? Well, I looked at this in a lot of different ways and I, with the help of the math department of Georgia Tech, I didn't remember every single thing from my statistics class. So yes, there's this, this plateauing if you look at the average amount per happy group, the ones, the twos, the threes, the fours, and the fives, which are the two happy quintiles. I also looked at it on a median basis. So what's the median amount of money that the happy retirees have. Like when do we tip over from the unhappy group to the happy group? And that's why I wanted to look, also look at this from a median perspective. Remember median versus mean. Median is the middle point of the data set. It's not just the average that can kind of get skewed. One or two really, really wealthy people or one or two people with almost nothing, right? We want to look at median so that we can see the most people that got into the happy group got to what level? Again, we're still in secret number two. The answer? It's $500,000. It's a half a million dollars. Now you might say, Wes, well, how can Susie say 5 million and Wes Moss is saying 500 grand? What? Well, let's do some math. Thousand bucks a month rule says for every 240,000, it's a thousand bucks a month. Well, two times that is close to 500 grand. And remember why we're doing this. We're doing this so that we can put ourselves in a position where we're not worried about, or the best position that we can be in, where we're not worried about running out of money when we're in retirement. Now let's look at Social Security. The average family has, an average person gets about $1,500 per month in Social Security. Now it can be a lot more than that. It can be well over $3,000 a month, but let's just say average person gets about $1,500 a month. Well, that's times two, husband and wife. Now we've got $3,000 in social. Now we've got $2,000 from your retirement savings. Now we're at five grand a month. Well, wait a minute. What if we have a little bit of rental income? What if we have a little bit of pension income? Now we're maybe at $6,000 a month. Well, guess what? After you understand rule number three, which I'm about to get to, give you a quick preview, no mortgage is powerful. When your expenses are lower in retirement, five or $6,000 a month really goes a long way really pays the bills. Now, I'm not saying happy retirees don't have a lot more than that in many cases, but I am saying that this is that median inflection point. I think of it this really important financial checkpoint 
that we need to get to that, by the way, is doable in America. Somebody tells me you need a minimum of $10 million to, to retire. I think a lot of Americans would shut down and say, well, that's never going to happen. You start saying, look, I think you need to at least get to 500000 Now it becomes possible. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Secret number three. Formulate a plan to pay off your mortgage in no more than five years. Happy retirees are seeing light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to perhaps the biggest expense or really the biggest expense we all experience in America, which is number one after taxes is mortgage, right? The cost of housing, of course, is the biggest, uh, are typically our biggest expense. Healthcare, by the way, is, is rivaling that these days. The, one of my favorite charts, as I, as I visualized this and the data came back, I would, this was such an aha moment here. And this goes, goes back to one of these financial tiebreakers. As years to pay off mortgage goes down, happiness levels go up. How, why, why is that? Well, it, to me, or my interpretation of that is that the closer we are to, to not having to pay that bill anymore, the closer we are to that huge weight off your shoulders and the economic freedom that comes along with not having to pay a mortgage payment. No wonder happy retirees are closer to having that payoff in sight. So here's some data from this. And, and, and again, the data is very clear on this. It shows that, that happiness levels, of course, go up as mortgage balances come down. On average, 36% of happy retirees will have their mortgage paid off within the next eight years. Only 24% of unhappy retirees will. 20% of the happy group, so, so one in five, is going to have their mortgage paid off in the next five years. Only 5% of the unhappy group is within the next five years payoff. So payoff is not in sight with, with the happy group. Hence, here's the way I look at this. If you're a retiree and your mortgage is going to be paid off within the next five years, you are four times more likely to end up in the happy camp. That is a powerful financial planning tiebreaker. Do you pay the mortgage? And, and I will say, uh, rarely do I work with a family over all of these years the question doesn't come up. Do we pay off the mortgage? How do we pay it off quicker? Or should we just pay it off completely? So let's walk through a couple of those. First of all, the most powerful way for most people to get a jump on, an, on a 30-year mortgage is that first of all, take out a 30-year mortgage and treat it uh, with one extra payment per year, one extra mortgage payment a year. So 13 payments versus 12. That's one wonderfully important start. The way, the, another way to do this, of course, is to, to take a 30-year mortgage out and interest rates are, will continue to be low for, for likely a long time and pay it off and pay it on a schedule of a 15-year. And if you do that, again, obviously, you're, you're going to shave half of the time off. But maybe even an easier way to do this is just put a little bit of extra principal towards the mortgage every single month. And a little bit goes a really long way. Here's an example of how just a little bit extra per month can dramatically reduce the time it takes to pay off a mortgage. So if you look at a mortgage, 
30-year mortgage, $250,000 mortgage, 300 bucks a month shaves nine years off of the mortgage payment. Again, 300 bucks a month extra towards the principal. So you go from paying the, the scheduled payment, and this is with a 5% interest rate, which again, rates are a lot lower than that, but scheduled payment is about 1,350 bucks. You add $300 per month to that, it shaves nine years and four months off the life of the loan. That's, that's such a powerful thing to understand. So if you're younger and you are thinking about buying a house, I think of it a couple of ways. One, the last thing you wanna do is have a 30-year mortgage payment that is at the very maximum that you can afford. That keeps you nervous and worried. What happens if I don't have a job for three months? What happens if uh, we have a huge expense and I can't pay the mortgage? What happens if, if, it's a, if you and your spouse are working together, what happens if one, one of you loses your job? So it's, so it's a common practice that I think makes a ton of sense is to take out a 30-year mortgage, but shop for a home as if you were on a 15-year payment schedule, right? A 15-year mortgage is gonna be a fair amount higher per month than the 30-year. Take the 30-year, but know that you could pay it on a 15-year amortization. And I think it's a really safe, comfortable way to look at mortgages. The other thing that's, I think, fascinating in the mortgage industry, particularly when you're younger, the mortgage industry is there to push you to, to borrow as much as you can. You call a mortgage broker up, you ask how much they afford. They'll take your gross income. And I always, it baffles me why they never consider taxes. Your gross income, and they'll say a third of your gross income is what you can spend as your monthly payment. For example, if you make $100,000 a year, a mortgage broker will say, well, a third of that, and again, remember $100,000 a year pre-tax is very different than what you actually receive in your paycheck, particularly if you're saving in a 401k. They'll say that you can afford $35,000 a year in a mortgage. Well, divided by 12, that's a, almost a $3,000 a month mortgage. And th think about that. If you're, if you're making $100,000 a year, $3,000 mortgage, that's a lot per month. It's taking up such, it's taking up way more than a third of your income because you really have to look at it as your, it's a third of your gross number, but really you're only receiving your after-tax number. Plus you want to be able to save, be, to have some saving. So it ends up at 40 or 50% of your take-home pay, which that's not comfortable. That's not a comfortable way to have a house payment. I, I think that we've all learned a lot in America since the financial crisis. Part of the financial crisis in 2007, 8, 9 was because people were over leveraged and maybe took out too much in a mortgage. But hear this piece of the equation. There's a reason that this is perhaps at the core of the happy retiree and retire early at the same time is be able to figure out a way to get rid of the mortgage. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the next five years, but by the time you retire, it, you want the mortgage either gone or close to pay, mortgage payoff in sight. Now, what about paying off the mortgage if you're already in retirement or you're close to it, just completely paying the mortgage off in one big chunk? I use a one, I call it, this is the one third rule on paying off a mortgage. And that's very simply is if you can pay off your mortgage with a third or less of your after-tax money, not your retirement money, not 401k IRA money, but a third or less of your after-tax money, then I think it's a good idea to write the check. If it's more than that, I think what's happening is you're ending up depleting what becomes perhaps your most sacred bucket of money in retirement, and that's your after-tax money or your Roth money. Anything that you can get to in a tax-efficient way, that's really important money to keep. So 
my my one third rule of paying off the mortgage completely is a third or less of your after tax money to pay off the mortgage. All right, before we move on to secret number four, just as a quick recap, we one, the happy retiree understands why they're saving money. It's going towards some future core pursuit that by the way, you should probably start like saving money early, starting your core pursuits earlier is better as well. Number two, remember the thousand bucks a month rule. So again, what's the financial side of saving money? Well, 240,000 for every $240,000 we save, it's about a thousand bucks a month. So if you do three multiples of that, it's three. If you have four multiples of that, which is about a million, now you're talking about $4,000 a month in income. It's also based around the anywhere from, really we call it the 4% plus rule, but anywhere from four to 5% is kind of the maximum you wanna be able to be taking out every year to give your money the, the best chance of lasting for a very long 30, 40, God willing, 50 year retirement. Number three, if you put those two together and you get to the $500,000 checkpoint, which is also part of secret number two, which is the median where, where we tip over from the unhappy retiree group to the happy retiree group. If you think about all of those pieces together with secret number three, which is essentially not having a mortgage or having your mortgage pay off within sight. So all of your money is going towards your discretionary income, all the fun things you wanted to. It all of a sudden creates this scenario where not working anymore, if you so choose to, becomes really possible. Before we get to secret number four, which by the way is this, develop an income stream of three or four sources, not just one, multiple streams of income, that's secret number four. We'll get to that in a second. I, I wanted to go just address another bigger, broader topic about work and, and stopping work. And it, to some extent, and the reason I've been on such a mission for helping people stop work early, it's not because everybody hates their job. It's just that most, not, most of America doesn't love their job, right? I remember back, the first book I ever wrote called Starting From Scratch 15 plus years ago. One of the things that I learned through research, this has been updated over and over and over again, and it still holds true, and Gallup is famous for doing this study, is that about one in five people in America are what I would call engaged. That means they like their work, they're good at their work and they really like it, so they're fully engaged and they're really working for fun. Three out of five folks, so again, 60% of people, are kind of in this take it or leave it camp. They don't hate their work, but they really don't love it. So they're doing it because they're getting a paycheck and they really have no other option. One in five, so the other 20%, the final 20%, one in five people hate their work so much that they are actively working to try to bring their company down. You know, like they want their boss to get fired, like they want the sales to not hit. They, they're really, they hate it so much. Who are we talking to here? Well, I think I'm, we're talking to the 80% of folks that are ready to be able to have financial freedom so they really don't have to work. We're also talking to the other 20% of folks that are saying, hey, I, I'm never gonna work a day in my life because I love doing this so much. Well, all of this still applies to them too. I think it is even more imperative for the 80%, the four and five people that are not at their dream, dream, dream job. And they're not at a place where you know they have to commute, even though most of the world can work remotely. No, you gotta be in the office or you gotta travel. Well, Zoom's not good enough. You gotta fly all over the country. 
Your commute is 45 minutes each way. Well, you got to be in the office. Well, if you love, love, love your work, maybe that's okay. But for a lot of people, even if you do like your job, it just wears you down over 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years. So again, what we're trying to do here on the Retire Sooner podcast is we're going through the five money secrets of the happiest retirees. These are the group that, hey, guess what? They get to retire a little bit sooner. Well, secret number four, develop an income stream for three or four sources, not just one. Here's the data. Happy retirees, the happy group, has at least three, on average, different sources of income. The unhappy group has less than two. Again, that may not sound dramatic, but every single source of income is a really big deal. Let me ask you this question. Would you rather get one $10,000 check in the mail every month, just one check, if checks even come in the mail anymore, or 10 $1,000 checks? Let's see, think about it for just a second. You think, ah, oh, it'd be just easier, convenient to get the one. Well, wait a minute. What happens if something happens to that source? What happens if it's coming from... An annuity, and the annuity is no longer viable. What happens if it's coming from a pension? The pensions ran out of money, and now it's, oh, but it'll be covered by the PBGC. Well, maybe, 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 maybe not. What happens if that one big source of income, God forbid, goes away? I think that's why these multiple streams of income is such an important habit for the happy group. It's because you get peace of mind. I'd rather have those 10 $1,000 checks because I'd have peace of mind. Well, if something happened to one of them, I'd sell $9,000 in income. That's still pretty good. So multiple tributaries of income running into one big stream is the way the happy retiree does it. It also makes sense that the more income streams you have, likely the more income you have. But if you look at happiness by current income, the plateau effect relationship is still very much intact. Yes, the happy group, the happiest group has a higher income than the unhappy group, but it really starts to tail off once we kind of get to this middle group. And these are folks that are very close to retirement or in retirement. The unhappy group of retirees average about $53,000, $54,000 a year. The happy group averages $82,770. So the happy group definitely has more income, and perhaps that is also why there are more income streams. But I think a big part of the equation here is that more tributaries gives you more peace of mind. Well, what are those income sources? What are we talking about? Well, of course, Social Security 1, Social Security 2, and you and your spouse, perhaps a pension for you and for a spouse. As far as the PBGC is concerned, the PBGC is the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp, which covers a certain amount of, if you've got a a moderate pension and the company happens to file chapter 11, go out of business, the PBGC steps in and covers that pension up to a certain point. But how many folks have pensions right now? If you're 25 listening or 35, very low likelihood that you have any sort of monthly pension program once you stop working. If you're listening to this podcast and you're 60 or 65, maybe you've worked at a company that either has a current pension plan or had one for a while at least, and they may be capped it at a certain amount. But again, every single income source really matters. Perhaps rental income. Very often we'll see happy retirees have a rental house or two or three or five or 10, and they have that rental income or passive rental income coming in over and over again. Let's not forget perhaps my favorite income source of all, and that is income from our investments, which we'll get to in the next secret. And of course, the more and different income streams I have, up to certainly a certain point, the more I'm able to do what? Well, peacefully, with peace of mind, pay for all the core pursuits that I started to identify 
from secret number one. Secret number five, become an income investor. I investing is difficult enough as it is. There are so many ups and downs in, in the market. There's so many choices between stocks and bonds and real estate and pipeline companies and U.S. and international and large cap and small cap. To me, one of the most difficult parts of investing, and I can see for, for families, is the to watch your value go up and down and up and down. It's actually not hard to watch it go higher. It's kind of exciting. But it's tough when it goes the other direction. And the more you save for retirement, and the more you have, the closer you typically get to retirement, the bigger those moves are. So when you have a 10% move on a $50,000 account, it's, it's not a huge number. When you have a 10% move on a million dollar account, that's $100,000. You say to yourself, wow, it took me a lot of years before I even, even earned $100,000. So the closer we get to retirement, typically the stakes get higher and higher and it makes often makes people even more nervous about their investments. Becoming an income investor is so important because there are a lot of things we can't control in investing. You can't control when a group of folks from Reddit want to run up a stock because they want to stick it to the hedge fund guys that are shorting a stock. We can't control that. We can't control if something crazy happens politically that brings the market down by five or 10%. We can't control an international event that might happen and impact us. What we can control is we can choose to have our investments pay us a steady income. I mentioned in secret number four about rental income and why that's so important with a steady paycheck. I think of investing in stocks and bonds and other areas of the marketplace really in four separate buckets, cash, income, growth, and alternative income. And really what matters here is that every single thing that I own, I want to own as an investor, and this is what this is the philosophy of the of many happy retirees. And by the way, there are I, I always couch this that there are so many investment styles out there. Whether you're an all growth investor, a daily trader, or a long term investor, or a dividend investor, there's really no perfect right or wrong answer. It's the it's this is this is how I believe the happy retiree does it because it adds to this layer of peace of mind, and that comes through income investing. So instead of owning momentum stocks that we're trading, a happy retiree may say, hey, I feel more comfortable owning a dividend paying company. So if the stocks in the growth bucket can pay a steady annual dividend, well, that's, that's a helpful cash flow that, by the way, I have a very high reliance on. Those dividends, even dividends are not guaranteed at all. But there is a very high likelihood if you have a diversified group of companies paying you dividends and they're healthy companies, they'll continue to do so. So it's a steady paycheck from your investments. Well, if I own fixed income or bonds, well, I get a steady interest rate every single either month or quarter or twice a year from the bonds that I own. If I own an alt, and that's in the income bucket. The third bucket for investments and not the cash bucket, but the alternative income bucket are, are things that pay something besides a dividend or interest. We call them distributions. That could be distributions from closed end funds or real estate investment trusts or pipeline companies called MLPs or preferred stocks. So there's all these areas around the investment universe that will pay you some sort of steady cash flow. If you take that cash flow, dividends and interest and distributions, pretty simply they add up to your portfolio yield, a percentage yield or portfolio cash flow. I look at that as one big paycheck, but just like we talked about in multiple income streams, it's multiple investment tributaries running into one, what's ultimately one bigger stream of income. And there's so much predictability to that in an otherwise really unpredictable world that I think it's a really powerful mechanism to think about your investments. Of course, as an investor, and we'll cover this when we talk about the 4% plus rule in another podcast, of course, we want to be able to pull out the most 
we can without having our money decline down to zero. God forbid running out of money is the scariest thing on the planet. But the investment formula is actually really simple. Total return. We're all after total return. I want my money to grow. What's the formula for total return? Well, it's growth plus income. That's it. Well, we, again, we don't know when markets are going to do really, really well in a given year or badly in a given year. Let's say we get hit by something like a, a pandemic or economic lockdowns that pull markets down dramatically. But we do believe over time, and this is a belief I have. This is certainly, again, no guarantee, but I'm a big believer that over time, America will continue to get better. That means the economy will get stronger. That means companies' earnings will continue to grow, and we'll get growth over time. We don't necessarily get growth in lockstep. But that's just the first part of the total return equation. The second part of the equation is income. And that really is and should be a very steady piece of the equation. And that's this whole thought of dividends and interest and distributions from every single thing I own as an investor so that I have some certainty in that calculation. So I have growth over time, that's the G part of the equation, and income every month or year from the income equation. And to me, that gives me enough predictability in that equation that gives me the peace of mind I need to be a better investor over time. So as difficult as it seems to retire sooner, I think all we need to go to learn how to do that is follow these five secrets to the happiest retirees. They figured it out. This wasn't just my idea. This came from a, a very long, broad research study. And understanding or reverse engineering the habits of this happy group, they're the ones that get to early retirement. What are they again? Determine what you need the money for. That's your core pursuits. Number two, remember the thousand bucks a month rule and get to the at least $500,000 checkpoint. Again, more is better and fine, more cushion, but let's at least get to that $500,000 level. Number three, formulate a plan to get rid of the mortgage. See if you can get rid of the mortgage at or before retirement or soon after retirement. Number four, develop income streams, multiple income streams. I'm not saying stop at three or four, go to five or six. By all means, keep working if you love your job, if you're in the one in five, but more and different income streams is better than less. Number five, become an income investor. Again, there are almost endless ways to go about investing. We're investing to protect our purchasing power over time so that we can continue to the same standard of living we have well into retirement after we, quote, stop working and our money is contributing as much as we need every single month and year to do all the things we want to do. By the way, it circles right back to secret number one, all the core pursuits that we're so excited to run towards when we get to stop working. None of this is rocket science. But it all takes a lot of time and a lot of discipline to get there. And I think the clearer the roadmap and the clearer our objectives, the easier it is to execute on any plan. And as opposed to saying, hey, you need all the money in the world to retire, which, by the way, Wall Street loves to say. Because if you think about it, Wall Street companies, big Wall Street companies, these are the big publicly traded companies. They make more money the more money you save with them. So by nature, it's never enough. Their philosophy is, okay, if you've got a million, you need two. If you have two million, you need four. If you have four million, you need 10. They're, they're never going to tell you it's time to slow down. These are publicly traded companies that need to continue to grow their asset base. I'm here to tell you that it does, it's, not an, it's not a perpetual or endless journey. If we can get to these checkpoints and then we can follow these habits and these secrets, then we get to a point where we don't really have to work if we don't need to. And that, to me, is the core of what we're trying to do here at the Retire Sooner podcast. I don't care what stage you're in, whether you're in your 20s listening to this or your 40s or you're knocking on retirement's door or you're well into retirement. This is a set of tools and habits of folks that have figured this out. And it's something that I follow every day. 
And I hope that you can learn from this as well. And it makes your journey to becoming an early retiree here on the Retire Sooner podcast all that much better and all that much easier and all that much more fun. I hope you found this episode and podcast helpful. If you're excited about taking this journey towards retiring sooner and happier, please be sure to subscribe. Share the Retire Sooner podcast with a friend who you would love to see retire sooner as well and leave a rating. Thanks so much for listening and look for new podcasts each week.